This is an ABC podcast. A lot happened in the 60s. It's marvellous. Hello! It was an amazing time for pop culture and rock and roll. It's fabulous. Free love, social change, civil rights and psychedelic drugs. And a tiny pill was invented that completely changed the lives of women. It caused a disconnect between having sex, which we've done for millennia, and having babies. This is Dr Terry Ferran. She's a sexual health physician who lectures at the University of New South Wales. She's talking about the invention of the contraceptive pill. It was cheap, discreet, safe, and even at the time, 99% effective. It's hard to overstate the difference the pill made. It gave us control over when we had kids. And controlling our fertility meant we could leave the house and get paid for our work or go to uni, giving us careers which up until then weren't open to us, like, for example, law or medicine. So it freed people from the sort of decisions they needed to make back prior to the 60s around if they got pregnant, what did they do about it? Did they marry the person even if they didn't know them very well? You know, there you are in a relationship expecting your fifth child. You really never wanted five. So it it really allowed an element of choice into what both men and women did. So I think it was a revolution for both in terms of their reproductive choices. Let's fast forward to today. You can take your pick from 12... Yes, 12 different types of contraception. There's the Implanon, IUDs, the combined pill for which there are like 30 brands. There's the mini pill and the morning after pill. There's the vaginal ring and the diaphragm. There's the male condom, the female condom. There's natural contraception. You can even get your tubes tied or a bloke can get a vasectomy. It's having what I call, you know, the contraceptive cafe out there. It's awesome that we have this choice and this freedom to choose from so many birth control options. But it's also confusing the hell out of women. Like, if you stopped the average woman on the street and asked her how her birth control actually worked, would she be able to answer? I mean, the problem with this cafe that Terry describes is that no one's given you a goddamn menu, let alone a list of ingredients. And I love food. (laughs) So I want to know what I can order without getting pregnant. I'm Yumi Steins. Ladies, we need to talk about birth control. This place is like a library of cool old objects. Oh, there's boxes of condoms, all different kinds up here. It's a condom bonanza. Yeah, I would not be wearing any of these anymore, though. Probably pass a use-by. <laughs> this is Nina Earle. So the two things She's are... a curator at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. And right now, we're with her in the basement of the museum, and it's huge. There's floor-to-ceiling shelving filled with ancient historical artefacts. We're in aisle 12, a.k.a. the naughty section, and we're hunting for really old condoms. This is probably one of our oldest items. It's a sheep gut condom or an animal membrane. It's big, right? Like, it looks like it would fit on a cucumber and... I don't mean like a baby cucumber. I mean like a big cucumber. 
If you look really closely in that corner over there, you can just see the very worn out silk ribbon that would have been used to tie it onto the base of the penis shaft. So a lot of early condoms like this and the thicker rubber ones, they talk about putting them in warm water to soften the membrane and also to make it more pleasurable for wearing. Humans have been trying to control how many babies we have for thousands of years, and fair enough, I say. We've used everything from fruit acids to spermicidal jellies to crocodile dung. Even the ancient Greeks used a type of giant fennel as some sort of morning-after pill, and it was so popular that it not only became more valuable than silver, it eventually went extinct. And the thing I'm learning from looking at these birth control artefacts is that women were willing to endure a fair bit of discomfort if it meant avoiding pregnancy. Oh, it's hiding. Is it? Yes. This tiny metal device here is a cervical cervico-uterine wishbone pursery. So basically, some of the earliest uh, insertion devices were made from metal, like gold, um, and metals that they knew didn't react too much with the body. Mm. And you can see it's, it's called a wishbone at the end. So like think like the chicken wishbone that you used to pull with your fingers. And they would hold that together with wax to insert it into the woman's uterus. And then her body heat would melt the wax. It would spring, spring open, open and hold itself in place. It looks like it would hurt. <laughs> I can't imagine this being wonderful. And again, there's probably a lot of women back in the 1930s who got diseases from having metal up inside them. I think I have one more. Yeah, in number aisle 12, we've got some wife's friend's pessaries which is essentially tablets that the woman could put up her um, inside her cervix before sex. And as they dissolve sort of during the process of sex and they actually kind of kill sperm. So they're a type of spermicide. Wow, do they work? Yeah, they're actually a really reasonable form of contraception, mostly because they're often made of quite harsh chemicals. So not really what you want to be putting up there. Most things shouldn't go up your vagina. Yeah. Not even penises, really. Who said that? (laughs) Okay, so we're all saying no to the pessary and two thumbs down to the wishbone. But look, if you are going to put someone's pee in your V (laughs) and you don't want to get pregnant or get an STI, you probably do want to use something. And while you've got 12 options, what we found out putting this episode together is that people don't know a hell of a lot about them. So what we're going to do is run through a few of the most popular options in Australia. For us, the pill is the top of the list, which Dr Terry, the sexual health physician, says is a uniquely Australian thing. We use a lot more pills. And I think that's for a number of reasons. I think There are just basic pragmatic reasons. It's tried and true. Your mum used it probably. Your girlfriends are on it. The other thing is that we can use the pill for other purposes. And many women take the pill not just for contraception, but for their skin or to make their periods lighter and shorter or manipulable. Some women use it because it does protect you against certain kinds of cancers, for example. So if you've got a family history of something like ovarian cancer, you can reduce your risk by 50% by taking the pill. So there are lots of reasons why people take the pill and perhaps put other things as a second choice. And I guess what most of us are trying to do these days is say, hey, that's great, but let's just look at the advantages of the other things as well. In a woman's pill packet, there's a week of sugar pills. 
right? So it's sort of to mimic your cycle because you'll get a bleed then. Why do those sugar pills exist? Well, that goes right back to the pills developers. There's a guy called Gregory Pincus, who is a biochemist, who actually designed the pill. He, right from the very beginning, said they could have designed it to be any length of cycle. They chose the monthly thing, firstly because I think women in those days liked the idea of having a period to let them know that they weren't pregnant, but secondly because it seemed more normal. The other developer of the pill was a gynaecologist called John Rock, who was a devout Catholic, and he believed that he desi- if he designed in a monthly break, they could sell it to the church at the time as merely a, a form of natural family planning. Now, that didn't work out, um, but that's one of the reasons why we've had monthly pills for such a long time. So that's the only reason why we have a bleed? It's the only reason we have a bleed. It's because that's how it was originally designed. And we don't actually have to do that bleed if we don't. We we do not. And in fact, two thirds of Australian women actually muck around with a pill in terms of manipulating the cycle so they don't have regular bleeds, at least for short periods of time. I know lots of women who went on the pill in their teens and early 20s and just kind of stayed on it. Is this you? And have you ever questioned that? Because the pill doesn't always agree with everyone. Professor Jayshri Kulkarni is a psychiatrist. She's the director of the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre, which does a lot of work on hormones, our reproductive systems and women's mental health. She says the pill actually affects the brain. It definitely does, but it hasn't been recognised. You know, we've had the pill since the 1960s, which has been a fantastic boon for women to be able to take charge of their reproductive life. But the actual ups and downs in terms of mood, anxiety, hasn't been recognised. And I'm sad to say that even now in 2019, we don't have the pill that is brilliantly side effect free. And a lot of the side effects are actually in uh, creating depression or anxiety Mm. or both. Does the pill affect you more if you're hormonally sensitive? Yes. So not all women have a problem. And in fact, well, I I see a selected population, obviously, because these are women who are struggling with depression, anxiety disorders. But uh, a lot of women don't have a problem. But I still think that the number of women who do experience depression uh, on the pill is is underestimated because this is not the sort of depression where it's a sudden bang, you know, very, very much can't get out of bed or floods of tears or uh, just completely incapacitated. It's a sub-threshold or sub-sort of severe depression where women can have a sort of slow onset loss of pleasure. Uh, you know, the world can be more grey. I think it was really interesting that one of my clients, uh, when we actually stopped the pill, she said it was like a week later, she suddenly felt that all of a sudden she was alive. And she described going on the roller coaster at Luna Park with her son and that she threw her arms up in the air and was just laughing. And she said it was really interesting that while she was on the pill, she could not remember having that kind of really just unbridled pleasure. It's a different quality of depression. Irritability is a common feature for women who experience depression on the pill. And uh, hostility to relationships. A huge Danish study from 2016 analysed 14 years of health data from more than a million women. Can you tell us in short what the study found? So this is a brilliant study. 
uh, mainly because it, it proved what we'd been finding in our own little study. So, it's, of course, it's a brilliant study. But it's the Scovland study. And Scovland, um, the Danish people are fabulous at having big registers. And what they did was they joined up and looked at the data for women who were on the pill and how many of those women were prescribed antidepressants. And there was a very big correlation between the two. So it was particularly pronounced on certain types of pills, so women who were taking the progesterone-only contraceptives and younger women, so by younger I mean 18 to 21. So those two groups had a much higher rate of depression, but the women who were on the pill had a much higher rate of depression as evidenced by a prescription of antidepressant compared to women who were not taking the pill. Now, a prescription of an antidepressant is a pretty serious thing. So again, I think this study, even though it definitely showed this link between the pill and mood uh, or depression problems, I think it's still an underestimate. And In our studies, which were clinical trials, so looking at prospectively women who took the pill and then we followed them up, that group, we picked up a lot more depression because we didn't kind of just wait till it got so bad that someone was prescribing an antidepressant. We were measuring all sorts of symptoms. So when we think about it, I think the problem is very pronounced and we really need to get on with finding the pill that has a nice oestrogen and a nice progesterone that doesn't cause the depression and anxiety for women. The other thing, of course, that makes it complex is that this isn't an invariable response because many women will go, hang on, I've been on the pill for 10 years and I haven't noticed any change, which is terrific because that is great for that woman. And of course, there are many, many, many millions of women who take the pill worldwide. And of course, not everybody is depressed. That kind of counters the argument then about, um, you know, what do you mean you're depressed because of the pill? Look at all these women who are not. It can also lead to invalidating the woman who is depressed who's on the pill uh, because she can sort of sense this I'm not believed or mm. they're making I'm making it up or, or you know, uh, the other thing is, well, OK, you know, I do have a stressful relationship but I'm not happy at work, but that's not the primary problem. But it can be used as a, as a reason or a rationale for the mood state and not the pill. We've got to look at everything. So if the pill isn't for you, here are some options. The second most popular item at the contraception cafe is a soft little rod a doctor inserts into your arm known as the contraceptive implant or implanon. It releases a hormone called progestogen, which stops your body from releasing an egg each month. You can keep it in your arm for three years and it's 99.9% effective. The implanon can cause a side effect of unpredictable vaginal bleeding, which naturally some women find inconvenient. And Dr Jayshree Kulkarni says because it contains progestogen, it can have a depressive effect on some people's bodies. So we've got the pill, the implanon, and third on the list are IUDs, or intrauterine devices. Here's Dr Terry. Particularly the hormonal IUD, the Mirena, uh, which is very commonly used particularly by women who've had babies, but that's not, that's not a prerequisite, and that's also, I think, misunderstood. The IUD can be used by any woman. 
It's just technically a little bit more difficult to put in someone that hasn't had a baby, but absolutely fine. Amazing, because I thought you had to have had a vaginal delivery no, to no, get one. No, 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 no. Man, okay, <laughs> great news. All right. If you don't know what a marina looks like, it's a T-shaped piece of plastic with a little nylon string at the end. The doctor uses a speculum and a special inserting device to get it inside your uterus, and the string dangles through your cervix for easy retrieval. The IUD contains progestin, a synthetic form of progesterone, which, again, can have a depressive effect on some people, particularly if you're hormonally sensitive. I used one for 10 years, and one of the side effects was that I didn't get a period for 10 years. It was brilliant. (laughs) If an IUD is not for you, I've got another idea. You can, of course, use the old faithful franger, the dinger, the rubber or the love glove. Condoms are hormone free and a hard 30% of us are using them. But you could always go a little more extreme. Stick with me because this is my personal favourite. Obviously, if you're completely sure you've you know, finished with your family, there are people who choose things like vasectomy or tubal occlusion, but they're less commonly used these days because our, our methods of contraception that are reversible, like the IUD, are so good and so easy, people are tending to choose those rather than going ahead and having surgery. I love a good vasectomy. <laughs> well, there's a lot to be said for that. <laughs> Absolutely. When somebody else takes the decision away from you, it makes it really easy. You know, all my friends whose partners have had vasectomies, none of them feel sorry for their partners when it's hurting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, look. They're like, it hurts. You're like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, perhaps there's a little bit of, you know, balance there in terms of previous delivery discomfort. Okay, so if you aren't ready for a balls-out measure like a vasectomy, what else are people using? Well, in the last few years, we've seen a rise in the number of people using cycle tracking apps, not only as a way of learning more about their bodies and predicting menstruation, but also as a form of contraception. There are various ways of doing it. The most primitive is just to chart your cycles for six months and try and work out when you ovulate by numbers. Not very accurate. You can track your mucus, which becomes slippery and quite different about six days before you ovulate. You stop having sex right then because, unfortunately, sperm can live for about five or six days. So you've got to get in early, okay? (laughs) So you've got to predict when that's going to occur. And lastly, as I said, there are apps. They do things like track temperatures and symptoms at your time, put it all into a little algorithm and tell you whether it's safe or not. And with those, you can get, in the very best circumstances, about a 6% failure rate. But you're going to be spending quite a lot of the time not having sex. Mm. So for some people, again, that's a, that's a big ask. It is. But, I mean, you could be having different kinds of sex. Yes, you can. You can be having different kinds of sex. We're only talking about non-penis in vagina during that particular time. <laughs> so, yes, you can do all sorts of un- other wonderful and fun things, but um, no penis in vagina sex during those 10 days or so. So you're saying roughly 6% failure rate for natural contraception. Mm-hmm. That's the same as the pill outside of clinical trials. It is. That's pretty that's, good, right? That That is in the best circumstances using an app, okay? Yeah. And doing it properly. Yeah. Because as soon as you get tempted one night during that 10 days, all bets are off, you're as likely to get pregnant as anybody else. This is becoming so popular that researchers are calling it the pull-out generation 
because of this growing interest in tracking your cycle and using the withdrawal method. Some doctors suggest it's down to society's preoccupation with an organic lifestyle. Dr Terry says that we're seeing a rise in what she calls hormonophobia, where women would like effective birth control without hormonal intervention. A recent study at Monash University estimated that about 15% of sexually active people in Australia are avoiding hormonal pills, which we fought so hard for in the 60s, and are opting for what is now being called natural contraception. Dr Terry says it isn't clear how effective combining the withdrawal method with cycle tracking apps actually is. It's really hard to know because when we talk about effectiveness, we can only really talk about it from a a trial perspective. A bunch of people doing exactly the same thing, numbers of them, over a period of time. And I'm not aware of any trials where people have combined things like withdrawal and cycle apps or natural family planning. The problem is that philosophically it worries me because it it violates both of them um, in that the the natural family planning is telling you don't have sex and then you say, well, I will, but, you know, I will pull out. And the trouble with that is you can get pregnant with withdrawal. So it's, it's troublesome. I would feel happier if they were using condoms, for example, during that time. That would probably give you a better failure rate. Does withdrawal work a little bit, like percentage-wise? <laughs> Look, worldwide, it's probably the thing that's made the most difference to the human race. So really? yes, yes, it does. But, you know, and I would never diss it because, you know, there are more effective ways of getting around than a bicycle, but, you know, we like bicycles. <laughs> um, so it's an important part of the deal. But it does have a failure rate. That's because there's sperm in the pre-cum. So in the cum that's there before anything else, and particularly if you have sex twice, because then there's going to be more of it, then there's a potential, particularly the young fertile couple, mm. to get pregnant. So it has a significant failure rate. Do you know the percentage of that failure rate? Well, it depends on how people do it, but it's usually quoted around about the 30% mark. So if 100 women were using withdrawal as their method for a year, up to 30 of them can expect to fall pregnant. That's better than the 80% using nothing, but it's still quite a high number. If you are using a cycle tracking app, just be mindful that some questions have been raised about whether some of these apps are forwarding on your data. And there is one which is allegedly funded by people with close ties to the anti-abortion movement. So do your homework and shop around, sisters. Hopefully you're now feeling better informed about your options. I mean... (sighs) We try. But at the Contraceptive Cafe, where it seems I'm your waitress for the day, it isn't always easy to figure out what works for you. We've heard from women who struggle to find the right birth control, and it's not for lack of trying. This is Siobhan. So I've been on the combined pill and the mini pill, and I'm now using condoms. And I still am at a loss for effective birth control and something to help with my anxiety around birth control, because at the moment, it's a daily thought and it's affecting my life. It might sound excessive to be thinking about your birth control every day, but Siobhan has a good reason to be fixated. Birth control, or more specifically, the failure of birth control, has played a huge part in her life. Siobhan first fell pregnant at 27, and the baby was not on her to-do list. So I've had three unplanned pregnancies in three years. One of those ended up in the emergency department as an ectopic pregnancy, and the other two ended up as two children. 
If you don't know what an ectopic pregnancy is, it's where an egg attaches itself somewhere outside the uterus. It can result in you losing one of your two fallopian tubes, which is what happened in Siobhan's case. Ectopic pregnancies are never viable, and if you don't get to a hospital in time, you can die. So life has been pretty centralised around birth control and the failure of it for us for a couple of years now. So those three pregnancies in three years, were you using birth control in every situation? Yes, I was using hormonal birth control in um, form of the combined pill or the mini pill over for each of those pregnancies. And what happened? We don't really know. Um, my GP has said to me, it's statistically improbable, but... Um, the first one on the combined pill, there was no indication that I'd missed anything. It was just a freak chance. If one failure in 10 years, they put it down to... You're kidding, one in 10 years. Yeah, they thought, you know, maybe that's that's where it failed. But then the second one, I'd missed a pill. So I'd waited a week and we went back on birth control. We just timed the window wrong. Uh, and the third one, we really have no idea again. You sound really fertile. <laughs> yeah, well, I have been told that I'm uh, possibly, well, we're possibly the most fertile couple on the planet and friends have joked that I could be a character on The Handmaid's Tale. Um, it's, it's not a, that funny a joke. <laughs> it, it's one of those things you've got to make light of it because what else are you going to do? The whole scenario has led to so much anxiety for Siobhan. She's desperate to avoid another unplanned pregnancy. At the moment, her anxiety about it all is so bad, she's going through at least one pregnancy test a week. She's been to a psychologist about it and to a doctor to work out what to do. I did think that I was going to come out feeling really reassured. I thought there was like a perfect answer and I was going to come out and be like, oh, my anxiety's gone. I don't have to think about birth control and spend ridiculous amounts of money on home pregnancy tests. But I think it's just birth control is so varied and is so dependent on the individual and the relationship and I just have to weigh up the options that I can use and, and identify which risks we're okay with. At this point, Siobhan is considering the Marina IUD. She's not sure it's the perfect solution. She and her partner are talking about vasectomy, but an IUD feels like the best option for now. All of this has weighed so heavily on Siobhan. It almost is um, a separation of mental and physical state because I don't feel like sometimes my physical body and my mental body are in tune with each other. How can you not want a pregnancy so much and do so much to prevent it and your body just runs its own course? So it has created a bit of anxiety because I think anything that runs in the back of your head daily is something that's it's going to get to you after a while. If you think about it all the time, if you wake up feeling a bit nauseous or if you've eaten too much or if your period's late or when you're breastfeeding and you don't really get one, you, it's something that it, it consumes too much of your mental time. And um, I sometimes think, imagine what I could achieve if I wasn't thinking about birth control and unplanned pregnancies. Mm. Yes, the mental load of birth control. The thing I keep thinking about with this episode is that, yeah, we're lucky we've got options, but it does generally all fall on us to work out which birth control to use. Talk about choice fatigue. I've been wondering a lot about where men are in this picture. Why don't they have a pill? While there are 10 methods of contraception for women, there are only two for men, condoms and vasectomy. Dr Terry says there are a couple of reasons for that. Well, I think 
there are two reasons for that too. One of them is philosophical in that men don't get pregnant, so perhaps there's not quite the motivation. But the other one is that it's much trickier. Uh, women produce one egg a month. We just have to stop that one egg. Men produce millions of sperm every single day, so it's harder to do. There are some interesting things happening there. There's a gel that's being developed overseas at the moment for guys, which is a combination of testosterone and uh, progesterone, and that's put on the skin every single day, and that looks quite promising. What, the skin of you at what? No, on your, on your skin. You just, just rub it in. You, so it's you like, rub, you're rubbing your arm. Yes, I'm rubbing my arm. <laughs> I am, not my penis. <laughs> so, no, you just put it on your skin. That sounds amazing. Okay, that's good. But that's, I'm assuming, a few years old. Yeah, it's the usual, you know, the in five years' time thing. Right. So, yeah, it's in development. But it is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a few things happening in the past in male contraception. But it, it, commercially it's probably not such a goer. And I think that's simply because it's the women who have to deal with the pregnancy, so they're more motivated to actually do it. And I guess I'd ask myself the big question. Uh, if my partner for the evening said, don't worry about it, I'm on the pill, I would ask myself again, I would probably still want something else like a condom unless that person I really trusted mm. or I was in a relationship with. Yeah, mm. some backup. Some backup. <laughs> Let's, what, what's the go with the male pill? Um, it's difficult and we ha- that's, the male pill um, I think has gone into limbo. What we're looking for for males these days is either what I just talked about, which is the gel, which is a bit more acceptable and a bit easier to manage, Um, There have been things like implants for males. Um, There have been injections for males. They work, but they have little market appeal. Didn't the World Health Organisation invest in research and clinical trials of the male pill? Yes, and they haven't come up with anything particularly good. Is that right? Yeah. As I said, the latest iteration is this gel, which looks a bit more promising um, simply because you, you tend to get less side effects with gels. Um, because you get a more constant delivery system. When you give someone a pill, you have to give them enough at the beginning of the day so that it's there at the end. And that means you get a much more sort of um, wave-like form and and the potential for more side effects. Um, And in the trials that have been done with male pills, that's been something that has been very hard to get men over the line for. So they didn't like the side effects? They didn't like the side effects. What were the side effects? It's really, it's often things like um, uh, alterations in libido, Okay, mm-hmm. uh, alterations in body habitus, so it can change the way that their body works and looks. Um, sometimes changes in the hair distribution. Sometimes, um, because most of them contain testosterone, it can actually be things like more anger, okay, um, more more irritation, and, and the patients didn't like it. It sounds everything you've just described <laughs> sounds like side effects for the women who take the pill at times. I think that that's true, um, that women do get side effects from the pill. And way back to the 60s where we started, the pills were 10 times the dose that they are now. So they probably got loads of side effects, but they embraced it because it was the best they had. Um, I think what happens with most women on the pill is that if you move around within the different brands and the types, you can generally find one that suits someone. Sometimes you can't and you have to look at something else. Um, and no woman should ever put up with, you know, side effects that bother her. We can do something with that. There's no such thing as, which I sometimes get, I've got these side effects but my doctor told told me I was on the lowest dose pill. No, you're not. There are different kinds and it's worth shopping around within them. Hear that? If you're feeling crap on your pill or you're getting persistent bleeding on an IUD, 
don't suffer in silence. Go to the doctor and have a chat to them about all your options. Remember that spread at the contraceptive cafe? You can pick and you can choose. Because if this episode has taught us anything, it's that women today are so freaking lucky to have all the birth control choices that we do. Not everyone in other countries has that choice. As it stands, of those 12 options, None of them involve a scratchy condom made from sheep's intestine. I mean, life goals, right? And remember, it takes two to tango, at least two, maybe more. So chat to your partner about this stuff too, because at the end of the day, contraception shouldn't be all on you. Also, we made a great episode on the secret life of our hormonal system last season, and we still get emails about how helpful that episode is for people. So if you're interested in hormones, please check it out. You can find Ladies We Need to Talk on a podcast app or on the ABC Listen app. Ladies is mixed by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. It's produced by Cassandra Steed. Supervising producer is Madeline Jenner and our executive producer is Justine Kelly. This series was created by Claudine Ryan. The manager of Audio Studios is Kelly Reardon. 